Winston Churchill once said, the pessimist sees difficulty in every opportunity. The optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. Get ready to be inspired. This is the Big Fish Cares Podcast. Big Fish Cares Podcast. Whether it's business, life, financial, relationships, we're sharing stories and journeys to help inspire you to be optimistic and to take action. No matter the hurdle in life, you can do it, and we're here to help. Welcome to the Big Fish Cares Podcast, and here's your host, Benny Fisher. I'm really excited today for our guest. He's written 31 books. He's been on the advisory board for the Western Pennsylvania Sports Museum at the Heinz History Center. He's been inducted into the Western chapter of the Pennsylvania Sports Hall of Fame. He's won the Bob Prince Award for his journalism, the David L. Lawrence Award for promoting Pittsburgh in a positive manner on a national level, teaches classes at multiple universities over Pittsburgh. He's the first Pittsburgher to be inducted into the U.S. Basketball Writers Association Hall of Fame. He's also been on the nomination board for the Basketball Hall of Fame. In 2012, he was given the Lifetime Achievement Award and inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. He also voted for 40 years as a Hall, Baseball Hall of Fame uh, voter and is an honorary member of the U.S. Baseball Writers Association. He's been a columnist for over the years for many local publications, including some national ones like the Sporting News, P- Philadelphia Evening Bulletin, the Miami News, and New York Post. He's also wrote stories for Newsweek, Basketball Times, the Football News, and the Washington Post. He's been married for 54 years. My dear friend, Jim O'Brien. Welcome to the show. Ben, I'm excited to be here, and I'm glad you invited me to come in and shoot the breeze about all sports. I've been around a lot of big people in sports, and uh, I like to tell stories about them, so uh, we're a good team. This is fun. I remember... uh... The way we met was at a home show, home and garden show. I feel like it was at the David L. Lawrence Convention Center probably eight or nine years ago. And I was sitting at a booth, and you were sitting next to me at a booth. And I was more fascinated with you and your stories and who you were than I was about you know selling any type of roofing material or anything like that with customers. So I appreciate you uh, entertaining me for that week and um i probably bugged you a bunch but i got to know you really well and uh, it's been great getting to be friends with you over the last 10 years well i appreciated the fact that you were ambitious and that uh you were starting your own business and so forth and i like to teach i've often told people that i feel like i am a sports writer but i'm really a teacher and uh, i love to help young people uh, make something of themselves and uh, get better and uh, learn to communicate better. You know, I have two daughters that are very successful, and I've told them both that it's important that they speak well and that they write well. And uh, if they can do that, no matter what kind of a job they have, they will prosper because uh, that's the key to success. My uh, 10th grade English teacher at Taylor Allardyce High School, who took an early interest in my writing, she told me, Jimmy, you will be known for the way you speak and the company you keep. And I've, I've tried to live up to that. Yeah, well, it's, uh, you're a legend. You're a legend in Pittsburgh. That's that means for sure. I'm getting old. No, I mean, you know, you have experience. <laughs> but I'm still hustling. You have, ex- well, you are. I just bought a book for 30 bucks. Right. Right out, of the, back of, your, right out of the back of your Chrysler. <laughs> I had a uh, meeting yesterday at Panera's with uh, uh, a fellow's name Anderson. 
Ted Anderson, the father, and Michael Anderson, the son. And uh, they bought 300 and some dollars worth of books from me. And when I came home, I said to my, I gave it to my wife. I said, here, I haven't given you a paycheck for a while. I said, uh, you know, I always take pride in the fact that I can go out and make some money during a period when a lot of people don't want to work. Sure, you got that right. You know, I've almost... I've almost uh, stopped at one of these places that have a sign hiring because it bothers me that these people are looking for help. Uh, there's a place near me out in Washington County that washes cars. They pay $19 an hour for you to dry cars. If, uh, if I wasn't worrying about uh, risking sunburn, because <laughs> the Irish are not meant to be out in the sun, $19 an hour to to uh, dry cars. I can do that. So tell me about how you, tell me about your journey. Um, where'd you grow up? Tell me about the journey of how you got into being an author, being a writer and, and being one of the best storytellers that I know. Well, the Irish have a gift for storytelling. That's one thing. There's a tradition for Irish to, to tell stories. So, uh, and uh, my name should have been Brendan. It was a great uh, Irish writer named Brendan uh, Behan who wrote a book called The Borstal Boy. And uh, Brendan O'Brien sounds good. It sounds like an author. When I was a kid, I was the one who determined what game we would play on the street where I lived. And the street was called Sunnyside Street. And I've often thought that uh, it's good that it was called Sunnyside Street because I like to think of myself as having a sunny up side disposition. And uh, I, would, I would have all the sports equipment. So if, even if I were sick, the kids would be knocking on my door to borrow a football or a baseball or a basketball. I was the one to put up the hoop on the pool. Uh, actually had did it, and I'm not a handyman, but I did it in such a way that the, the boards uh, stuck out over the street and you could do a layup and go underneath of it until a furniture truck knocked it down. But uh, I, the kids said they never had to worry about what they were going to play on a given day, especially in the summer, because Jim O'Brien always had something lined up for us. I had a I uh, had a track on my street, uh, quarter mile oval. I uh, fashioned a uh, discus from some wood chips. I brought, built a broad jump pit. Uh, there was a lot on our street called the horseshoe lot, where of course once upon a time men played horseshoes, and I would fix that field so that we could play ball. And it was an uneven surface, and I had a sore line that ran up through the middle of it, and everything else, and a. A ball hit into somebody's yard would be a double, and into the next yard would be a home run. But I get I determined all that, and then one day I start writing little stories about what we were doing, and then I started sliding them under the door of the local weekly newspaper. How old were you? Fourteen. Wow. And they didn't know that I was so little. I was I was the smallest kid on the street at my age, and uh, first in Holy Communion, first in Confirmation. You know, the midgets were at the front of the line, <laughs> the tall girls were at the back. And uh, one day they called me and asked me if I wanted to be the sports editor of the paper. I don't think they knew I was 14. I don't think they knew I was about 4'11". And uh, I wrote for the Hazelwood Envoy for five years until I became the sports editor of the Pitt News as a sophomore. I was the first non-senior to be the sports editor of the Pitt News. One of the previous sports editors was Myron Cope. So, and there were some good ones, uh, B.Z. Weinstein and uh, George Casita, one of the best sports writers ever to come out of Pittsburgh that nobody knows about, worked for the Los Angeles Times and the Philadelphia Daily News. 
So I just, I just started writing. And then my, I met Myron Cope when I was uh, 15. He's the terrible towel guy, right? He's the terrible towel guy. And he was uh, uh, often misused and uh, not a particularly appreciated sports writer for the Post-Gazette. Al Abrams, the sports editor, kept him buried. And uh, it's a shame because most of the people on his staff couldn't write. But Myron was the best, and he wrote well enough to get uh, assignments from Sports Illustrated and Collier's and True Magazine and stuff like that. So one day when I was 15, I met him at the Pitfield House. He was covering the Golden Gloves, and that was his top assignment. And it was my top assignment because I lived in Hazelwood and Glenwood, and the Glen Hazel Boys Club was the best boxing team in the city of Pittsburgh for 12 years. So uh, I said, Mr. Cope, what do I have to do to become a writer? And he said, kid, you got to sit down and start writing. <laughs> the best advice I ever got. Because even now, it won't happen by itself. You have to sit down and start writing. And I was fortunate that writing has always been easy for me. Now, some people say it's difficult. Boxing, you don't get writer's block? No. That's, like, that's not a thing? No, no. Uh, Bob Smizek a friend of mine tells me that uh, it's hard to write. And I know writers who boast about uh, sweating blood and tears. Red Smith, one of the finest, did that. Maybe I would be a better writer if I worked harder at it, but maybe I wouldn't write if it were hard to do. Um, I don't sleep well all the time because I'm thinking of sentences. I'm actually, th I like, I don't know music, I don't know how to write music, but I appreciate music, and I like to think that my writing has a certain rhythm to it. I like subtle uh, alliteration. And this past year, somebody, a friend of mine, invited me to a sing-along. And no one has ever in 79 years invited me to a sing-along because I can't sing. I do a Millie Vanilla, you know, I pretend like I'm singing. <laughs> a little lip-sing action. Even in church, yeah. you know, I stand next to a good singer and pretend like I'm singing. But um, she had some songs by Billy Joel and also by uh, uh, Neil Diamond. And she had them on the screen in the front of the room so that people could read the words. And I had sort of an epiphany because I noticed that they weren't sentences. They were just images. Throw out two or three words, sounds. And all of a sudden, I started to, in my late 70s, incorporate that into my own writing because I had these images and I had these sounds. And so you can never stop learning. Uh, I read a lot. My wife, I'm lucky I'm married to a woman who's bright and puts up with me. And she reads about 40 to 45 books a year. Wow. Doesn't read the same books I read. But she recently did read a book that I read. I read a book that was so good that I read it in seven straight hours. What book? The book is called Out of the Blue. What's it about? And the writer's name is Bernstein. He works for the New York Times. And it's a book about 9-11. And what I like about it is it's so personal. He writes about people on both sides of the equation in, on 9-11. I mean, he writes, he introduces the, 
the Skyjackers, for instance, and who they were and what they were all about and what their background was and their training. And the book, really, it's, it's, uh, it's so insightful about what happened. And I had had lunch one day at the top of one of the tires at the uh, windows uh, on the world. In fact, we were with Bob Smizek and his wife, Nancy. We had introduced them. Nancy had been a roommate of my wife in grad school at Pitt. So we were in that room, and that particular morning, there were, there were people from 40 different countries who were in the room, the rainbow, I mean, the uh, windows on the world, and uh, they were all killed. And when I saw that image of the building just dissolving into dust, I mean, it was something you'll just never forget, you know. Where were you at that day? I was in my, I was typing. I was typing at the computer in my home in Upper St. Clair. My next-door neighbor called me, Claudia Franiuti. She called me. She said, turn on the television. And I was just with a woman the other day who was a teacher and told me that the school where she was teaching, they were told, don't turn on the TV. They did not want the children in the, in the school to see the images because they thought it would be terrifying for them. And I wonder about that because, uh, in fact, I asked her, I said, have you ever had any second thoughts about that decision that someone made for you, you know, that uh, you didn't get to see it? Uh, kids grow up. And I know, for instance, myself, I'll never forget where I was when Bill Mazeroski hit the home run to win the World Series in 1960. I was a freshman at Pitt, and I was in the student union. So tell me about Pitt a little bit, because we're... Well, one other part ahead. of that was I was on the same street when I learned that uh, JFK had been slain on the streets of Dallas. On Sunnyside Street? No, oh. on Forbes Avenue. Forbes Avenue. So you were actually at Pitt. I so, was at Pitt. So you actually stayed. So you went from Hazelwood to Pitt. Did you actually, and you stayed on campus? No. No. Wasn't that wealthy. <laughs> I did have a scholarship. I did have a scholarship. Elsie uh, Hillman knew my mother, and Elsie Hillman was the chairman of the uh, Republican Party for Western Pennsylvania. So I went to Pitt with a half scholarship, and then my sophomore year, I got the other half by being the sports editor of the Pitt News. That's really cool. My uh, my new business partner, Rob Tokay, who just came on board in uh, April, he's from Hazelwood. And you two are the, the two people that are the closest to me that I know from Hazel. But I've always heard that there's been a lot of good people that come out of Hazelwood. Um, and I like people that come out of Hazelwood because they're always tough. <laughs> and I feel like, I don't know, does Hazelwood have a little reputation for being tough? Well, I told you that I covered the Glen Hazel Boys Club in boxing because they were the best team. They, they imported boxers from Homestead and from the Hill District and so forth. But when I was a young teenager, I went to the Glen Hazel Boys Club and took boxing lessons for about two years, not because I wanted to be a boxer, because I wanted to survive the streets of Hazelwood and Glenwood. Um, when you were a teenager, you knew who in the neighborhood you could beat in a fight. You knew who you couldn't beat, and you knew what was a toss-up. And it was like Ring, Ring Magazine ratings or something, you know. You knew where you stood in the pecking order. And sometimes we wrestled and boxed in, in uh, local garages on, uh, on urine-stained mattresses and so forth, you know. Were people betting money on you? I don't know about that. Yeah, no? That's something I don't do. 
I don't do. My, my everybody in my family bet on the numbers, and uh, my mother loved to play bingo. My sister played bingo. My brothers all bet on sports. And that's something that right now I think is a real danger in this country because you can't turn on a sports event today without being uh, bombarded with ads relating to sports betting. Yeah. And they're telling you about how easy it is to win money. And I know better. It's easy to lose money. Yeah. And the more you know about sports, and I think I know a little bit about sports. I would say so. The more you know, the less you know. as far as predicting the outcome with spreads right. and stuff, oh, absolutely. Right. When you went to Pitt, what uh, did, I mean, were you, did you study English and writing, or like what, what was that? Well, I started out as a journalism student, and I realized by after one term, uh, being taught by fellows that worked at the Post Gazette and the Sun Telegraph and so forth, I had learned on the job what they were teaching me. So I switched and became an English writing major. And that was a wise decision because in my lifetime, I've, I've worked for ad agencies. I've written copy. I've written comic strips. I've uh, done newsletters, uh, flyers. Uh, any way that you can communicate, I've done it. And sometimes all at the same time. I mean, I, I used to have three jobs. I was like Stan Saverin. If I didn't have three jobs, I got nervous. <laughs> but when I was in New York, for instance, uh, I worked at the New York Post, the largest evening p- paper in the country. Did you go there after college? Yes. Okay. Not directly. Bino Cook and I had this newspaper called Pittsburgh Weekly Sports for five years. And I was the editor and Bino was the business manager, which is a bit of a joke. Bino used to pay people by endorsing checks. You know, he'd just sign a check and hand hand it to them. But he introduced me to the best writers in the country, which later led to jobs at the best newspapers in the country. And better yet, when I was 18, Bino got me into the stock market. Wow. And I've been in it ever since. What year would that be? Tell me, give, give the give the people at home a, a, a reference. Nineteen sixty-two. Okay, 1962. so you're, you're you're coming out of high school and it's in the early sixties. Right. Okay. I went to Taylor Alderdice High School in Squirrel Hill. All right. And um, I entertained uh, the students at Taylor Alderdice. I mean, I can remember in public speaking class. I learned some. I learned a lot at at uh, Alderdice. I started out at Central Catholic. As, and I was there for a year and a half. And I was in the best class there, 1F and 1S. And you got into those classes by, you know, taking an evaluation test. So I was one of the smart kids at uh, Central Catholic. But in my sophomore year, I asked the moderator of the student newspaper why my story, which was quite lengthy, did not have a byline. What's a byline? By Jim O'Brien. Okay. In the Viking newspaper. All right. He hauled off and slapped me in the face. Just slapped me in the face. Brother Emery, Francis Emery, I'll never forget him. And uh, one of my classmates to this day can't believe that he hit me, but I wouldn't make it up. He hit me, and I went to a phone on the wall, which dates me as well, and I called my mother, and I said, Mom, I'm out of here. I'm going to Alderdice. That's where I wanted to go in the first place. That's where I'm going. And... uh, The thing I lacked at Autodice was the discipline that uh, I required and uh, you had whether you liked it or not at Central Catholic. But I had really good teachers at Taylor Autodice High School. 
and there were a preponderance, and uh, I hope this is politically correct, but uh, to me it's a, it's a tribute. I knew that there were a lot of Jewish students at Taylor Allardyce, maybe 60%, and they cared about school, and they cared, and, and they were expected by their parents to excel in school. So I benefited from, from the company I was keeping, and the classes that I had that I still they still resonate with me is public speaking, speed reading, which they don't teach anymore, and I benefit from that. That's how I read that out of the blue in seven straight hours. Typing. I had a hard time getting grades in, in typing, but I can type as fast as most secretaries in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and I've made a living. I've made a living using my adroit dancing fingers. Um, I had a class in history that was especially good by a man named Sam Blitz. I mean, who? how many people my age remember their school teachers by name? And Miss Kerensky was my typing teacher. And she used to wear these sh- shoes that had tread on them like a John Deere tractor. She had fallen as a, as a teacher early and banged her head on the blackboard and told us that one day. And I laughed when she told the story. And she said one day she was threatened to leap over her desk and strangle me in class. <laughs> Fortunately, she couldn't leap. <laughs> but I saw her years later in downtown Pittsburgh in front of the Horns building, and it was raining, and there were puddles in the street. And she was walking in the puddles with those shoes. And I thought, this makes sense. It finally makes sense that she has these shoes on. And I stopped her on the sidewalk, and I said, Miss Skorinsky, I don't expect you to remember me, but I want to thank you for teaching me how to type. I said, I've made a good living as a result of your efforts, and I know that you wanted to kill me, but uh, I want to thank you. And that's one thing I think that's important to do is thank people. You know, thank people who have helped you. I think I'm big on that. Another thing I like to do is it's easy to be a good guy. And I surround myself with good guys these days. A friend of mine came up to me about six years ago, and he said, "Uh, you always go to lunch with really good people. He said, why don't we start a lunch club? And I said, what, for good guys? And he said, yeah, good guys. And one of the things that I've done in the six years is I try to impress upon them the need for us all to work at being good guys. You know, it's easy to know. I mean, people let the door fly when you're walking into a store. I don't let the door fly, you know. You're a gentleman. I'm a gentleman. And a scholar. And a scholar. Um, I remember when you started that, you actually invited me. I think I was at the first, I think I was at the first one, or maybe you were doing them at Fridays over in South Hills Village, mm-hmm. and they were kind of just starting to take off. Then when you moved to Atria's in, in, uh, over by your house in Waterdam, that's when they really were like more like, you know, there was 50 people there every single time. You couldn't get a seat. I mean, it was packed, and then I think as then COVID came, and I feel like it's probably not. Yeah, that hurt since. us. That hurt us. But I have one coming up soon, and and there'll be about forty eight people. We'll be filling the the club room, and I may even have to move it to the main dining room. That's right. When I started the Big Fish Contracting Company, it was in two thousand fifteen. I remember coming to a couple of events because I was, you know, the young whippersnapper business guy just trying to meet a bunch of people. You introduced me to Art Rooney's brother. 
Art Rooney Jr. Or Art Rooney, yeah, Art Rooney Jr. I get confused with all the Rooneys because I'm I'm from Canton, Ohio. I just moved here 11 years ago, so I'm still trying to figure out, you know, and I hate the Steelers because I'm a Browns fan, but I respect the Steelers. I'm always trying to learn about stuff, but the whole Rooney thing is it's hard for me to k- kind of keep track of all of them. And I also met, uh, you had me, I have a picture with Andy Russell. That was really cool. Um who else did we well, meet? Well, like Eddie Johnson comes. Yeah, to Eddie all- Johnson. He he's the one with the ring, the, right. the P- Pittsburgh Penguin ring. He yeah. comes to all the luncheons. Andy Russell comes to all the luncheons. Frank Thomas, the the original Frank Thomas. Yeah, not the up. not the guy for, that played for the White Sox right. back in the nineties. Frank wants to come to the luncheons on a regular basis, and uh, I've had in the six years I've had over a hundred speakers. I've had Hall of Famers such as uh, uh, Rocky Blyer and uh, Franco Harris and Dwayne Woodruff, and Mel Blunt, and I've had, uh, I'm working I'm working right now to get one of my former students at Point Park University to come, and he wants to come, but his schedule gets crazy, so he, he's trying to make sure that he can come. And that's Bob Pompiani. Oh, all right, yeah, I've, I've seen Bob at a couple charity events and stuff like that. And you told me that when we do this podcast that, uh, you know, whatever comes up, let's Let's say something about it. Bob Pompiani was a student of mine at Point Park University in a communications class. And he was an intern at the same time at the KDKA. So one of the things I did for him was he would do tape-recorded interviews, and I would have him play it for me and so forth, and I would tell him what I thought about it. And he was a he was a bright young man and bright eyed. You know, I always used to tell my daughters, "Don't bring anybody home that doesn't have a gleam in their eye, because they can't get anything done." And Bob Pompiani was the kind of young man that I that I just embraced. And his he has an internship at KDKA Television while he's a student at Point Park. His mother wants him to quit the job at KDKA because. He's not getting the grades at Point Park that she thought that he should be getting. So Bob tells me this. And he was in a woeful mood as he expressed uh, what his mother had said. And I said, get your mother and bring her into class. I need to talk to her. And I met Mrs. Pompiani, and I said, Mrs. Pompiani, I said, Bob already has the job he wants to do for the rest of his life. That was 40-some years ago. He didn't leave KDKA. He stayed there. He See, he had his foot in the door. I mean, internships are so important in that regard. And I've always promoted young people when I worked at Pitt. I had about a dozen students, men and women, who've come into great jobs in public relations and newspapers and magazines and so forth. And uh, I tutored them. And actually, you know, they did a lot of my work. They told me that uh, they did all the dirty work and made me look good. Well, they found out my secret. And uh, I'm so proud of them. I mean, Pat Hanlon, for instance. I don't know if you ever heard of Pat Hanlon. Pat Hanlon was an intern at the Pittsburgh Press when I worked there. And every time I asked Pat Hanlon to do something for me, he did it. He did it right away, and he'd come back and say, what do you want me to do next? Yeah, next. Yeah, it's good. And Pat was at Pitt when I went there. And he was my first hire. That was I'm proud of that. He was my first hire. And I helped him. I, I promoted him to the University of Oklahoma and West Virginia. He got jobs. And then I promoted him to the Steelers, and he became the assistant public relations man. 
And then he went from there to the New England Patriots, and he went from there to the uh, New York football giants. And Pat Hanlon is an executive vice president of the New York Giants. He makes about $225,000, $250,000 a year. And uh, he's been with him for a long, long time. He's, he's good at what he does. He has a great personality. So he was a real uh, ally for me. He, was a, he did make me look good. And I think it's important uh, when you hire people, is hire people that you, that you can mold, that you can teach. But they've got to have that gleam in their eye. Absolutely. I, uh, you had the gleam in your eye when I first met you, which is part of your appeal. I hope I still have the gleam you in do. my eye. You do, especially when uh, women walk by. It's really important because I feel like when you – I interview people all the time. That's pretty much all I do anymore is like interview and, and, do, and help with the marketing department. And we're finding a lot of people, and I don't – it's – it's getting tough out there because it's you get a hundred people that send a resume in. You ask for ten of them to show up for an interview. Seven of them say they're going to come. Only five actually show up. You only really like three of them. You hire. You try to hire two of them. One doesn't show up on their first day, and the other one quits after ninety days. So, like, that's out of a hundred. <laughs> and it's and it's getting tougher and tougher. And I keep seeing on resumes. One of the things that my mom taught me when I was young was. Don't quit a job until you have another job. Exactly. Right? Rule number one, right? Yeah. You know? And I see all these gaps, like, all over the place. And I'm just like, what have you been doing? <laughs> like, And they're like, oh, well, I just haven't found what I'm looking for. Haven't, like, I'm like, yeah, well, how do you pay for things? Yeah, get a job. It may not be the job, but get a job until you get the job. Yeah. And uh, my younger daughter, Rebecca, it was about 44, 45 years old. She lost her job at the outset of the pandemic in the restaurant business. She had an executive position, but it was in a position that was uh, expendable during tough times. Had she remained a general manager of the restaurant, which she did for many years, she would not have been let go, but she was not in an essential position and she cost a lot of money. So, I've told her, I've tried to get her to uh, to get a job. And she's being interviewed right now. And I just said to her yesterday, I said, you cannot have a better resume than you have in the restaurant business. I mean, she was the operator of the year, two out of three years for California Pizza Kitchen, which is an international chain. The best. She was the best at running a restaurant. It doesn't surprise me if she's coming from uh, the Jim O'Brien. Well, she told her mother, she said, dad's always telling me how to do my work. And and I went to college for hotel and restaurant management. And my wife said, your dad spends a lot of time in restaurants. You know, people that are host in restaurants or hostess, I wonder if anybody gave them a job description. They don't smile. They don't (laughs) greet you by name, even though you're a regular customer. They don't clean up after somebody else. You know, somebody told me that when you work in a restaurant, that if you're not serving someone, you should serve someone who is. And what that means, of course, is that one of your coworkers is in the, getting something in the kitchen and there's some dirty dishes on his table or her table. Pick them up. Make yourself useful. 
And I was lucky as a young man to, Frankie Gustine, who had played for the Pittsburgh Pirates, owned a restaurant in Oakland near Forbes Field. A very popular restaurant for over 30 years. And Frankie Gustine knew his customers, knew his customers. I'm always impressed when I see the owner of a restaurant taking the time to go around the tables and say something to each of the customers. If I owned a restaurant, I would touch every customer who comes in the restaurant. That's our personality. Yeah. Yeah. We like that part. I would like them to know that I appreciate their business. You know, my father, I've always said that this was my, this is where I got my, my work mantra. I didn't realize how long the depression was. You know, I thought maybe it was two or three years. It was like seven or eight years, the Great Depression. That was like, what, in the 20s? Yeah, and my father didn't have a job during that period of time, but not a regular job. And he went out, my mother told me this, he went out every day and knocked on doors. You need something done. Is there something I can fix? Is your yard need cleaned up? Whatever they wanted, he'd do. Problem solver. And he, he, he prided himself on coming home with some money in his pocket. And that's kind of me. I was a uh, newspaper delivery boy when I, for the Post-Gazette when I was a kid. And I was good at it. And the thing about that is I learned everything you need to know to be successful in business. One, you got to get up earlier than everybody else. You have to go out in bad weather. I hated it whenever it was a, a lightning. Oh, that was, the, that was the worst. Running from door to door. You had a knock on people's doors, and, and uh, many of my customers were different ethnic groups, and uh, I had a knock on the door, and sometimes for three weeks to get paid. I had to be responsible for the money I collected. I couldn't lose it. couldn't blow it. And uh, I remember when I played pinball machines as a kid, uh, one of my best friends played for hours. I, I just played until I lost about a quarter or something like that. I didn't want to lose money. And uh, I learned as a kid how to hustle. And uh, it serves you well the rest of your life. And I enjoy it. See, that's the other thing. I enjoy writing. Um, It's a gift. It's a gift. And I recognize that it's a gift. When we have a generation right now of kids or people that don't have a whole lot of hustle in them, it doesn't seem like, how do we, can you, do you think you can teach hustle? Or do you think hustle is something that you're born with? That's a good question. I uh, I have a writing group at my church, and I uh, about 25 people. They're all over 65. My best writer is 96. <laughs> I love her, Betty Digby. <laughs> you're, 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 you're a young buck compared to oh, her. her, yeah. Yeah, she loves me. <laughs> and I don't think I teach people how to write but I make it easier for them to write. I think teachers in school, you know, with the essays and the term paper, and I think they make it scary. And I, I, I just get the words down on paper. Like Myron Cope told me, just sit down and start writing. Get your stories into the machine or today into your computer or your iPhone or what have you. And... Um, I like to do that. I like to motivate people. And I think you, one of the things that I did when I worked at Pitt was I had uh, interns. And when I got there, they had two interns in the department. And they made them feel like they'd gotten into Harvard. I had 20-some interns. Myron Cope said I had more interns than Dr. Starzl. 
Who's Dr. Starzl? One of the world's <laughs> leading transplant surgeons who made his mark at Pitt. Uh, okay. Probably as much as uh, Jonas Salk, who discovered polio the vaccine. polio yeah. vaccine. So I know that one, okay? Yeah, I didn't one. know who Starzl was. In the was, 50s. Though. You know, there's a story, uh, Dr. Uh, Salk, he had a building across from Pitt Stadium, right next door. And uh, when he actually conducted his experiments of, of the shot, <laughs> They had the Pitt football team walk across the street to his uh, lab, and he gave them shots. And they really didn't ask the guys if they wanted to get shots or anything else. It's kind of like today's day. <laughs> we keep promoting the shot. Right. So Dr. Salk, I think they should have a statue. You know, there's no statue at, on the Pitt campus of Dr. Salk. I mean, he brought worldwide attention to the school. And during this most recent pandemic, I was hoping that, that the Pitt doctors would would actually have the breakthrough and come up with a uh, vaccine that would uh, cure it. They did some major work, and they, and they did some good things and contributed to the overall effort and the health of us, but they didn't, they, they were, didn't, weren't Moderna, they weren't Pfizer, and um, what's the other one, Ben? The, 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 the Pfizer and Moderna. I don't, I don't watch the news. I have no idea. I'm, I'm probably the, the worst at that. Um I have no idea. There's a third. But speaking of COVID, you wrote for, so, you know, you being the older generation, you had to like, you know, you, you were probably real protective, right? I'm sure Kathy made you stay home and not, not let you be out as much as, as, as you probably were used to. No, not as that, much that as some be, of my That had to be tough for you because I know you're a networking guy and you yeah. like to be out there with the people. I wrote, I wrote a book called The Strangest Season Yeah. during the pandemic. That was my cure for the pandemic to get busy and, and, and get something accomplished. And I didn't hide in the attic like Tony Kornheiser, uh, my friend. And you know Tony? Oh yeah. I, oh yeah. I gave him his first assignment to for a magazine. Uh, What's the show? He's on ESPN. He does the show with um, Pardon the Interruption. Pardon the with Interruption. Mike yeah. And that's what we used to They're do. They're still doing that show. Oh I, yeah. Twenty years. Wow. That's and impressive. That's what we're, we're. You and I are in the first year of our twenty years of doing this. <laughs> well, you'll be ninety nine when we wrap it up. Uh, right. And uh, hopefully I'll still be able to talk. That's the key. So tell me about the strangest, uh, the strangest season. Tell me what it's about. You know who that is? That looks like um, Mike Tomlin with a face mask on. Right. Yeah. And it kind of captures the idea of, uh, you know, the Steelers mask. And you can see his eyes and they look concerned, which they should have. It was a strange period, this 2020, 2021, and, and maybe it'll extend into 2022. Um, a lot of weird stuff has happened in the last two years uh, that because of the pandemic and uh, how it, it changed things and, you know, games without a crowd. Uh, it's like if a tree falls in a forest and no one hears it, did it really fall, you know? Yeah, it's really hard to watch sports without people in the stadium. Exactly, yeah. and uh, there, were, there were eight... Hall of Fame baseball players who died during that two-year period. Eight. Should have been nine. Richie <laughs> Allen died. Sounds like a book that you could write. <laughs> Should have been nine. Should have been a Hall of Famer. But Richie was difficult with people. He's from Wampum, PA in western Pennsylvania. was uh, there when Don Hennon was on the basketball team and the Allen brothers were on the sports teams. and Richie... Uh, was difficult with the writers, and they they uh, got their revenge by not voting for him. See, I never did that during the forty years that I voted for the Hall of Fame. 
For instance, I would have voted for Barry Bonds. Jerk, yes, but great baseball player. Yeah. You're uh, more about the what they did on the field than what they were like off the field. Yeah, but correct? that was that's that's okay. I mean, that's part of the process, uh, how you behave and so forth. And one of the people, uh, they forgave a lot of sins of Babe Ruth for sure. Uh, but um, there wasn't social media back then. Pete Rose would have been a first ballot, but he's never been on the ballot. See, people don't understand that. Pete Rose's name has never appeared. On a ballot. Can you write them in? You could. But yeah. then you'd be like... But you'd be you'd breaking be like, the rules. Yeah. Like, and, and he's not eligible. He's not eligible for the Baseball Hall of Fame. And he's one of the greatest baseball players and one of the greatest competitors ever. And I interviewed him many times. My, one of my favorite teams to deal with was the Big Red Machine. They okay. Did, yeah, you know, Joe Morgan. Yeah. And the only guy... I, Griffey I was on that team, Griffey. right? The Senior? only guy I didn't like was uh, Johnny Bench. Okay. Jack, Catcher? Jerk. Yeah. Just a jerk. From Bangor, Bangor uh, Oklahoma. Is that because he wouldn't give you an interview, or is that because no. like, yeah? In fact, in fact, it brings to mind an interview. No, he just was difficult. He didn't get it. You know, like he used to. They he became a member of that celebrity golf tour, but he wasn't kind with the crowd. You know, yeah, they're not there to see Johnny Bench play golf. They're there to because he's a celebrity. And that's something that, you know, we were lucky. We had Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer was the best at dealing with the public and so forth. And uh, uh, he didn't come by it naturally. He just worked at it. He worked at it. And uh, you pay attention to people like that. You know, for instance, Arnold Palmer taught Joe Namath something. Joe Namath was scribbling his signature once, and Arnold Palmer said that if someone thinks enough of you to ask you for your autograph, you ought to write it in a manner that five years from now, when they look at it, they know who who wrote. Grab it. that helmet right there. Right. Check that out. It looks nice. You can see. You can actually see. You can actually Joe name. It. Yeah, you can see it. You can read it. It's legible. Well, one all of these my, guys: Otto Graham, Lou Groza. I mean, they they all all favorite, those favorites of mine. All, all those, those old school guys, man. They write le- nice and legible, legible. for you. Legible, good yeah. word. Good and word. then you see like LeBron James. You saw the autograph back in my. It's like big scribble. Right. You know. Well, the players today actually work at com- developing a an autograph you know something well, cuz now they can sell them for money and stuff yeah, like that fancy. but Roethlisberger's is a waste of time yeah he's got a fast one Lemieux used to have a good one but he doesn't anymore uh, Roberto Clemente actually had two different distinctive autograph uh, sig- signatures and uh, depends on if it was the guy in the clubhouse signing for him right. or if it was him signing correct well with the cuz there's a whole story about that I knew that. a woman his, with his, the because clubhouse guy would sign autographs. I knew a woman that worked for the. Not, she was a volunteer for the Penguins, and she did all the Lemieux stuff for years. You know, answering this stuff. And uh, Lemieux, every so often, Lemieux can fly, take a private jet, and go to Toronto, and sit down at a table to show for two hours or something like that, and make, um, you know, make. Fifty thousand, sixty thousand dollars. So can Jack Lambert, just signing their name for some stuff. And uh, Lynn Swan. It's when they got Jack Lambert, Mike Webster, and John Stallworth, and they got Jimmy Allen. They, yeah, that's like half a Canton. And Jimmy Allen. All those guys are in Canton. Made a mistake of telling Chuck Noll, "Play me or trade me." <laughs> Noll traded him to the Lions, whom he led 
and interceptions. Uh, so you used, they used to do those shenanigans back then, like they do now, because like now they make all these crazy demands. So back then they were doing it. They probably just wasn't publicized, right? Because yeah. there's not as much. There was no ESPN back then, right? Well, he said to me, first of all, he he became a homeless person. Who? Jimmy Allen. Really? Nobody knew where he was. None of the Steelers knew where he was. I think I remember you telling me about that when we had lunch the other day. You were telling me about Jimmy Allen. And and then didn't you say you went to try to find him? Yes. (laughs) In Los Angeles. What would you tell your wife about that one? Well, actually, (laughs) my daughter's... I actually, what happened was I sent his wife a copy of the book on Jack Lambert in which I had a chapter about the fact that Jimmy Allen was missing as a homeless person. <laughs> That's so crazy. And uh, it was like Don Quixote. You know, I thought it was a fool's mission to, to tilt. Uh, it's like searching for Bobby Fisher. Right. Yeah. But I sent his wife a book, and he came, he'd come home once in a while for a funeral or a birthday. And he came in the house and picked up the Lambert book, and my phone number was in there, and he called me out of the blue. And I felt like... Uh, you know, Livingston, I presume. I felt like, my God, how could you find a homeless person? I don't know if you ever saw the book or the movie, The Soloist. No. With um, I don't think. Jamie Foxx. And he was a musician who, had, as a young man, had studied at Juilliard School. Oh, yeah, in New York. He was like, it was like, yeah, in the streets of New York. Right. And he was like a rough, almost like homeless. Yeah. And then he got he got found and right. then like, yeah, went on the big things. A yeah, writer, I did see that. A writer named Steve Lopez at the Los Angeles Times wrote a column about him and then became a friend of his and then sort of helped him out and so forth and got him straightened away temporarily because he, he really was a mental case. But he was a gifted musician. But that, that inspired me to find, want to find him. And my, my daughter's boyfriend, Juan Vareo, he said to me one day, a mistake on his part, he said, I'm yours all day tomorrow. Anything you want me to do, you know, I'll, I'll do. I said, I want you to take me to Victorville. And Victorville was where Jimmy Allen was living. He'd gotten his act together. He had a nice house. The NFL helped him with some money. And Victorville, by the way, was where Sammy David, Sammy Davis Jr. lost his eye. The Rat Pack. Yeah, from the Rat Pack. Yeah. Do you remember those? Um, I don't remember. No. Those knobs on steering wheels. You know, they had a knob, <laughs> a decorative mo- I've, knob. I've only been driving since like 1997, right. so I'm not sure. Well, on they, the shifter, you mean? On the wheel. On the wheel. On the wheel. You would hold it. And it was a decorative knob. It, they, they were almost like uh, the goalie's helmets in hockey or something like that. No. And uh, he was in a wreck, and, his, and he struck his eye against that knob. They're, they're illegal now. They're, you're not allowed to have them. Uh, okay. So I'm, like, skimming through this book real quick. Cause this is like, you, so you wrote this during COVID, and it just came out, what, September, October? Yes. Just a couple months ago. Yes. So that's awesome. And I'm seeing all kinds of just interesting stories. I see your wife's name mentioned. You know, you uh, you obviously mentioned Kathy in a lot of your stories because she's probably the one that has to give you permission to even go do the interview or do the story or whatever. But so I see her name. I see pictures of like, you know, there's an article in here called The Two Memorable Days in the Summer of 1962. Like just there's no rhyme or reason. Is it just stuff that popped in your head as you were writing during COVID and you would just write a story, huh? Right, because it fit the theme. It fit the theme of uh, 
It was like the morning that you were waking Strange. up and thinking about Bill Hillgrove. I met Bill Hillgrove at one of your uh, at lunches. Right. Yeah, he's an awesome guy. I got Joe Montana's autograph. I was like probably 16 years old because I grew up in Canton. So my mom would drop me off at the Hall of Fame steps. She would. This is back before we had cell phones too. Like you know, I had to use a payphone, and we'd have a meetup spot. And she she would drop me off like at eight in the morning. ESPN would be getting set up. I would get a, a, a front row seat as close as I could get. Um, I remember sitting next to Chris Berman one year while we were watching it. And, um, well, Joe Montana was, like, leaving through, like, the gate or whatever. I threw him a football. He signed it, gave it back to me. I thought that was pretty cool. So my interaction with Joe Montana was always pretty cool. But uh, Well, I think that's important. Yeah. I think you should judge people by the way they treat you. Yeah, no, and I do. I mean, that's, that's, that's another life lesson. We should probably do a whole podcast after this is all wrapped up of life lessons with Jim O'Brien. Well, I'll tell you, the thing about athletes is I never genuflected in front of an athlete or what, a ball player. Give me, tell me what that means again. Genuflect. Yeah, go ahead. That's a word. Take a I knee. dropped out of college. so Take a knee, but not like uh, Colin Kaepernick. It's uh, one of you, when you go into a Catholic church, for instance, and you're in the aisle, you genuflect and you toward the altar. So that's so thing. you know. Oh, so you never acted like you were impressed with these guys because you got to go in no, as a writer, right? Is no, that what you mean? No, I didn't bow before them, right? Like, but I respected, right? Them. I respected them, and it was professional for you. You're a writer. Had to, they had to trust me, mm-hmm. and I've had situations where just this past year I interviewed uh, Adam Fraser, who was my favorite pirate, and I was warned not to get too caught up with him because he wouldn't be there long, and that proved right. <laughs> But Adam Frazier, I, I, I talked to him on a phone at a hotel when he was on the road. And he didn't know me, but I had met him when the day that he reported to the Pirates, I met him in a hotel in Indianapolis where I was interviewing basketball players. He had a bag, and he was checking out, and it said Pirates on it. I said, do you play for the Pirates? He said, I hope so. And he smiled, and he was going to report to the Pirates, and, that's, and he stayed with the team ever since. But... I had to establish, and I've done this several times, I had about five minutes, the way I see it, to establish a relationship on the phone where he knew that I knew what I was talking about and that I wasn't a jerk, I wasn't a fan, just a stupid, you know, person. And uh, that's a a, uh, skill. That's a skill set of being able to make them realize you know, I, I told him for openers, I said, do you know that he had just made this great play behind shortstop for the Pirates where he did a spin and threw the first base for an out, And it was a great, great play. And I said to him, I said, you know that you did something that Ozzie Smith never did. The wizard. That Billy Mazeroski never did. I said, Maz wasn't fast enough to get to where you got to. That's one thing. I said, but if he had, he made the, he would have made the play. But I said, you did something Mazeroski never did. You did something Ozzie Smith never did. Well, if you're Adam Frazier and someone tells you that, you have to like him. And yeah. what I said was, you were able to watch that play over and over and over and over on your phone they didn't. They couldn't do that. You could see that, and he admitted that he had watched it a lot. No, no wonder because it was a, such a fantastic play. But so that's how you hooked him, though. You hooked I, him by hooked you, him. you hooked him by giving him something that nobody else has brought to his attention. You were creative enough to figure that out through all your history of sports. 
And you package that up to get to your favorite player, and then boom, you got your interview. Right. Yeah. No, and that's it, that's resourceful. And then he told me, I asked him, someone said, well, how, how, did, how do you do an interview without asking him the questions everybody asks him? I said to him, uh, what are you reading? And he was reading these book, the book about 12 rules of life. Yeah, Jordan Peterson. Right. Oh, great book. And I went, I went to a bookstore the next day and got the book and read it so I would know what he was reading and what he was thinking. And it shows you that here's a baseball player that is examining himself, you know, wants to be the best he can be. And you learn something like that. And, and, I, and the other thing I did at the end of the interview was I thanked him. I'm, I'm thinking right now I got to call... I got to call a football player who's who's ill. Well, listen, you're going to get a chance to do that because we're going to wrap this episode up, and then we're going to come back next week, and we're going to talk. What do you want to talk about next week? Muhammad Ali. So we're going to talk boxing next week. We're going to talk boxing. All right. Pittsburgh has a great boxing history. It was once one of the biggest boxing meccas in the country back in the 30s and 40s. What's the best way – What's the best way for people to get a hold of you at? Just the Jimmy O at gmail.com? Well, if anybody still has a phone book. Give them the phone number if you want. No, the, what I'm saying is I'm the only Jim O'Brien in the Pittsburgh phone book. That's My a- number is 412-221-3580. And I answer the phone unless it says spam on it. And I'll talk to you. And if you look up, the best thing you can do if you have a computer is to Google Pittsburgh sports author Jim O'Brien, and you will see all my books, pictures of the covers, summaries of the stories, and you'll be able to contact me. But in the future, you tune into this podcast with me and my friend Ben Fisher, the big fish. Yeah, we're going to have you on a bunch of times. This so is we're going to do some more of these. Yeah, this is going to be fun. So Tell your friends about it. Thanks again for coming today, Jim. And uh, we'll talk next week a little bit of boxing. And uh, thanks. There was a boxing writer in Pittsburgh named Jim Jab. It's <laughs> a great boxing name. Right, right? Yeah. great boxing name, Jim Jab. So we'll, we'll, we'll do some sparring next week. Awesome. Bring your gloves. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to the Big Fish Cares podcast. It's our passion to help share stories and journeys, to help inspire optimism, to take action and accomplish your goals. Make sure to like, rate, and review the show. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hook up with us on the website at www.thebigfishcares.com. Find us on Facebook at The Big Fish Cares and on Instagram at bigfish.benny. See you next time. Thank you.